Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ucher and LARB's Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate and Medea. Hey. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, So today, you guys both did an interview. I wasn't on this one, unfortunately, but you did an interview with Sam Lipsight, the author of Hark, though I did read that book because I love self-improvement and yoga and all of that sort of thing. (laughs) You're a big fan of archery. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Mindful archery. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the conversation? Yeah. Kate. You tell us a little bit about the conversation. <laughs> what did we talked about if Sam has ever believed in anything like the cult of Hark? Mm. It was a big surprise. He has not. He has not. Yeah. Um, it doesn't surprise me. Not, it's a not, bit cynical not a, for that. Yeah. Not a big believer in anything. But but we had a talk also about some teachers he's had, including Gordon Lish, oh, very famous writer wow. and editor, Gordon yeah. Lish, who was his teacher, and raising children, dealing with cynicism and... Uh, the bleak future when you're raising children, sentence construction. What else did we talk about? <laughs> um, we sort of walked around the abyss a little bit um, and talked about that and how one might avoid just jumping head first into it. Sam also gave us a little bit of advice, I think. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to talk to him. So it's all practical, almost like he became your guru in just 30 <gasps> Sam, years. Ooh, we worship topical. Sam and um, we are now his acolytes. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, now maybe we can convert you too, listeners. Let's go to that conversation. Let's do it. We're here today with Sam Lipsight. Sam is the author of several novels and short story collections, including Venus Drive, Homeland, and The Ask. He joins us today to talk about his latest novel, Hark which follows Hark Mourner, an accidental lifestyle guru, and his inner circle of acolytes as they pitch a sort of mindfulness and focus program they call Mental Archery to a public reeling from the demands of life in a beleaguered present. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hi. So we thought that it would be great to start the show with a reading because this book has a very particular and wonderful voice. Oh. Would you do that? Sure. I'll just read from the very beginning. Perfect. Listen. Before Hark, was it ever harder to be human? Was it ever harder to believe in our world? The weather made us wonder. The markets had. The wars. The rich had stopped pretending they were just the best of us and not some utterly other form of life. The rest, the most, could glimpse their end on earth, in the parched basins and roiling seas, but could not march against their masters. They slaughtered each other instead, retracted into glowing holes. Hark glowed, too. He came to us and was goldeny. It wasn't that Hark had the answer. It was more that he didn't. All he possessed, he claimed, were a few tricks or tips to help people focus. At work, at home, out for coffee with a client or a friend. Listen, before Hark, was it ever harder to find focus? Hark gathered his tips together, called it mental archery. Pretty silly, he liked to say. But some knew better. Some were certain he had a secret, a mystery, a miracle. For what was mental archery but the essence of Hark, and what was the essence of Hark but love? In this hurt world, how could that hurt? The hunters of meaning had found no meaning. The wanters of dreams were dreamless. Many now drifted toward Hark Mourner. This is like the backstory. That's perfect. Thank you. So maybe we can begin 
just by giving listeners an idea of what this book is about, give a sort of brief introduction, as does your first page reading. It's about this false prophet of sorts named Hark, as you said. What brought you to the subject? Well, I think I've always been drawn to groups of people, thinking about those dynamics. And I was very interested in creating this character in Hark, who is someone who's kind of a cipher in some sense. And I like the idea of having these other characters who we would really get to know, but watch them sort of project their fears and desires onto this almost blank figure. And I think that maybe mirrors the way other kinds of religious or spiritual movements operate. But it wasn't, I didn't have any grand ideas when I started. I really started with a couple of characters and this silly idea of mental archery, sort of the goofiest form of yoga I could (laughs) imagine. And it just sort of built out from there. Did the idea of mental archery just occur to you one day? Or is this a combination of something? I think that I had, I was playing around with a character named Fraz who was in here, but mental archery came very early. That was sort of what generated a lot of the rest of the book was just this idea. I mean, it was almost a challenge to myself. Could I come up with something that preposterous and carry it through? Since this book is about belief, these people find someone to believe in and a cause to kind of get behind. I'm wondering in your own life, what types of experiences you've had around either like organized religion, politics, something else more esoteric. Have you ever been in the position of Hark's followers in any way at all? Well, I feel like I've been enthralled by various people in my life, whether it was, you know, a very charismatic camp counselor or a teacher. I don't think I've ever been involved in a group like that, so to speak. And I'm not religious, but I think I, you know, have had that feeling around books at different times around literature. Like, I think one can get cultish around books and writers. So, I mean, maybe that is part of it. But I always saw myself as a good second-in-command, someone who could, you know, help a leader. I just haven't found the leader yet. (laughs) (laughs) You were a student of Gordon Lish's, though, right? And, I mean, he had many acolytes, but he seems to actually give real, whereas Hark seems a little hapless and not maybe that right. substantive. It seems like Gordon had... Well, he had something to offer. Exactly. Yeah. He was actually teaching people how to write. But those classes were very intense, and people who were not outside of them referred to them as cultish, I think, at times, and they had that reputation. But when you were in it, you were just kind of... If you were ready to not hold on to your own ego, I guess, your writing ego, give it up a little bit, you could gain a lot by just sitting in the room and listening to Gordon which is what I did for a few years in the mid-90s. I think that I've written other characters that were maybe more inspired by Gordon in the past, so Hark is not one of them. There was a character in my first novel that, looking back, I realized he was kind of a Gordon-lish figure, but his name was Heinrich of Newark. But the thing about Hark in this book that happens is that at first he's very hapless, but he does sort of... His journey is figuring out who he is, and he doesn't really know who he is as the book begins. By the end, he's it's kind of frightening what it turns out to be, and I'm not going to say it here because I hope people will go out and read it, but it's a journey for Hark to find out who he is and who he's always been forever because he's not just this hapless fake guru in the end, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. (laughs) It does. I'm deciding whether I should ask my next question and tell you my Gordon Lish story, which I will very briefly, which is that the one time I met Gordon Lish, he said, oh, I have this guy that you should go out with. Here's his phone number. And that's what he wrote. And a book and handed me the book and was like, you should call him. He's nice. 
I never did. Wow. Though I'm pretty sure he was matchmaker. Nice. He's a matchmaker <laughs> and a genius editor. Who was, you don't know who the guy was? Yeah, who no, is the guy? Was, I don't know. I never, he never said his name. Just He, was he might have said, this was many years ago. He might have said his name, and I think he told me his job, and he sounded gainfully mm. employed at a publisher, I think. Maybe he worked at Penguin or something. Mm. And it just seemed too weird to pick up the phone and call and say, oh, um, Gordon Lish gave me your number. He <laughs> thinks we should date. <laughs> and I just did, wasn't. How many times in your life do you get to do that? Well, <laughs> yes, that's right. I blew my one chance. Well, Gordon never fixed me up, so. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Maybe he did and nobody ever called because they felt weird. That's true. Well, one of the things that I was thinking when I was reading this book in Hark's sort of progression and trying to figure out what he is, something that really struck me is that it seems like part of that progression is from a joke and a person yeah. who is making jokes pretty yeah, consciously. Yeah. As a stand-up comedian. He's a stand-up comic, yeah. To a person who's kind of in on the joke. Right. And then to a person who has forgotten that it's a joke and has bought into whatever it is that he's shilling or selling. Right. And it's an interesting progression because it's also extremely familiar, you know, in terms of our (laughs) political and social situation. And maybe even the way we live our lives sometimes. Yes. Personal lives where we start doing something semi-ironically and then it's kind of a joke and we're not that committed to it. And then suddenly we're living it in in earnest and we don't really know how that happened. Do you have anything like that? Sometimes I think that's how every book starts. (laughs) uh, Because you do have to take that leap at a certain point and say, I can't write in some kind of cautious way. I can't protect myself. I have to leap into this in an exposed and vulnerable way way. I think that's what happens when you undertake any artistic project, actually. You may be edging up to it with a kind of knowingness and a savviness, but at a certain point, you have to commit in a wholehearted way. It seems a little complicated. I mean, of course, you have to commit to the writing, but with satire, it seems like there's also always going to be some kind of distance in the writing. Yeah. It's curious. It's just such a funny book, but there's pathos under there. There's lots of pathos there, but I've often just wondered that with people who write funny and more outlandish stories. How do you do that? Well, you're constantly working on that balance. And that's part of what revision is for me, is trying to find the right mix. But without the pathos, the other stuff is not interesting to me. It's not the jokes are there to power the other stuff, to power the feeling, the vulnerability, the pathos. And to not hark so much, but these other characters, I really wanted to get dimensionality in there with them and really understand their lives a little bit. I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write this blistering satire now, because then I'll just be staring at a blank page for a long time. I really just kind of go in and start small and start dealing with a, a scene or a character or some dialogue or a description and let it grow. And I don't even say I'm writing a comic novel. I just say I'm writing a novel. And I know that I have just this comic filter. It's just the way it comes through me and it's the way it comes out. And more often than not, it leans into, I kind of think of it as more of a tragic comic angle. And so I think that life is very funny and very sad all the time, and usually at once. And so that's the territory I feel that I'm working in. And so it feels, even though I know that on some level, especially with a book like this, which is broader than maybe some of my stories are, it has this kind of broader scope and it has this satirical edge to it. I'm trying to work in in the fine grain of it and not really thinking about the big picture all the time. Well, I was going to ask him, but it sounds like maybe you don't have this and that's what allows you to work, is that before you start, do you have a more platonic idea of, okay, this is like my perfect book that I want to write and here's kind of what it's like, but you're not sure and you have this idea and then you end up writing something 
kind of like that, completely not like that, or you don't even have this idea well, in your head before you just start on the page? It's funny because I think we do, in truth, that, you know, obviously it doesn't exist. The platonic ideal does not exist. And so we, or at least I'm wary of thinking like there's a perfect version of this book somewhere because right. there isn't. There's just what you make. But it's very hard to escape that feeling. So in a way, your book is just sort of the failed attempt, yeah, to reach <laughs> what you thought it could be. And that, of course, I mean, there's a writer I always like, Ronald Sukunik from many years ago. The last line of one of his novels was just another failure. <laughs> 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 there is that element to it. And of course, it's always... But also, I think there's an interesting thing that happens when you may think you're doing one thing and in failing, you land somewhere else that's maybe even more interesting or different or surprising. And so that's part of it as well. I didn't exactly know what Hark would be or what the tone would be or what it would, what the feel of the book would be when I started. I just, I had to discover that as I wrote it. And I didn't really have an outline or anything like that. I just sort of felt my way through those early scenes and then saw it seemed to keep opening up and these more characters came in and more situations and more dynamics. And so I just followed that. And then I was talking about this the other day with someone I didn't really, I didn't know what the ending was going to be. And I, I had a different ending for a long time and I wasn't satisfied with it. So maybe there is a version of the book somewhere else that has everything I could have done, but you end up with what you have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, were you raised with this kind of balance in your household? With the balance between something that ultimately is tragic comic, but that vacillates from one to the other pretty quickly, sometimes in a matter of two sentences, even. Yeah. Was this something that you are familiar with? Well, just I guess I grew child? up in a house full of full of books, full mm. of love, anger, depression, wit. I mean, there was all a swirl of different moods, but both of my parents were very funny, I think. My mother was especially, had a very withering sense of humor when she wanted to. And I don't know if that's where it comes from, but trying to find humor in the pain was sanctioned in my house. I mean, Because something I noticed in the book is there's a pull, it seems like, into nonsense <laughs> that, yeah. that a lot of the characters are both attracted to and also need to find anchors out of in order to continue existing, right? Because you can get sucked into the nonsense and disappear into it. Yeah. <laughs> or you can find some way to sort of play with that attraction while also figuring out a way to not get fully sucked into it. And even that first page that you read, I think the language somewhat teeters between sense and nonsense. Yeah. Listen, hark, you're saying it's a sure. repetitive that means the same thing. And the thing that I noticed, at least in terms of the anchors that I discovered in the book, is family almost every time, where Tova is the anchor for Fraz. I always want to say Franz. I know. But that's, the, but it is. that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> He's a mistake. Uh, and the kids represent some kind of anchor. So it seems like there's a way in which family at least allows you. To not fly off. To, yeah, to yeah. not fly off into the distance and to not get sucked into the nonsense. Yeah, well, I think it's, I like this idea. Of, I think they glimpse nonsense and they glimpse the abyss too at different times. Maybe that's all the same thing. And they get these little views of it and then they have to kind of regroup and that happens in the book a bit. And I think that a lot of it does happen through language and the characters. Often these characters are aware of how language works or how it speaks them at times and the kind of lingo and cant of the different subgroups of our world kind of swirl through the book. And a lot of the nonsense is revealed through the ways we use 
whatever, pick your cliche or pick your euphemism in the ways they kind of code over those glimpses of the nonsense and the abyss. It's scary, though, to pick up a book where that's such an attraction. I don't think you see that in every book where you see how an abyss would be a really attractive option (laughs) (laughs) or in some ways how we're already in that abyss anyway, you know, and so what's the point in fighting it? Right. I mean, it's not that it's it's just drawing back the curtain and looking Mm -hmm. through the window and then closing the curtain, you know, and there's a bit later in the book where he talks about Fraz. He says, I was raised by atheists, but I maybe I want to resist my parents' sour invitation to the void. And like I. You know, that's why I'm going to go with Hark and believe and try to force myself to believe in mental archery and this new spiritual practice. And he's sort of trying to convince himself because he doesn't, he's tired of feeling that nothingness. Yeah. I think I picked up on that and yeah. maybe that's when I was asking you in the beginning, like what your experience with yeah. that. Did you ever want to believe in something? Or I think that's yeah. hard for people who have a strong I'm not going to say a strong intellect alone because there are lots of smart people who are very strong religious people as well. But when you're not able to give yourself wholeheartedly to anything and you can always see that sliver of why it might not be right or how it's not going to be the complete answer, that can be really frustrating because it does kind of leave you with just a little bit of everything or nothing at all. Yeah. I think that I've had times where I really wanted to believe things. But yeah, it's very hard to get there. And I envy people who especially envy, you know, I remember thinking about Catholic intellectuals like Gary Wills type or someone who like could be so smart and have this faith and be such an intellectual and yet have some relationship with, you know, his idea of God or whatever. That to me, it's totally alien to me, but I was always very fascinated by it because I wanted to understand and I think part of me thought that would be comforting that would be nice to be able to be in that groove you are listening to the LAR Radio Hour recorded at KPFK Studios in a very rainy studio city we've been speaking with Sam Lipsight author of Hark we return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Dan Lopez in the studio with us today. Dan is the author of The Show House, and he is here to recommend a book. Dan, what book are you going to recommend? Hi, Dea. Today, I'd like to recommend, in honor of the late, great Stephen Hawking, his newest book called Brief Answers to the Big Questions. This book is a collection of his public writings um, over the last few years. Combined, it was finished actually after he passed. Uh, His colleagues and family helped complete it. But if you've been following his sort of public criticism, public writings, it's not going to be a lot of new stuff. But it does touch on everything from questions like, is there a God? Short answer, no, but maybe. To the dangers and advantages of artificial intelligence. Uh, He also goes into what he's arguably best known for in the physics world, Hawking particle. I don't quite understand how this works, but it's the way a black hole radiates electromagnetic radiation. It has something to do with particle and antiparticle pairs. All of which is to say, it drives to this idea of time. A lot of his the book revolves around this concept of time, which is always very fascinating to me. What is time? Like, what's his essential nature? 
And what I liked about this book in particular, in a real dumbed-down way, I should say I'm not a physicist, I'm not a scientist. I like reading this stuff if I can understand it, and I often have to like watch YouTube videos after reading it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how difficult is, is the text? It's The text itself is actually pretty straightforward. He does a really great job of talking about like, like using metaphors. Like For instance, the particle-antiparticle thing. He's like, this radiates because two things appear, one falls in the black hole and the other one flies away. So like we can all kind of understand with that concept. Now when you can start... <laughs> you can understand the concept <laughs> of something falling to a hole and something running in the other direction. Yes, but what is a black hole? Well, that's a, a larger question. He does get into that. I'm not going to attempt to explain it now other than to say it seems to be an infinitely dense singularity where time doesn't exist. Oh, God, <laughs> we, have to, we just have to read the book to get this. Yeah, um, I liked reading it because I like thinking about those ideas, like what is our universe? What's the essential nature of our universe? Things like time that seem so germane to our everyday existence may only exist because of the universe is the way it is. Like there wasn't a time before time. It just that concept doesn't exist. So stuff like that, he gets into it and in actually a pretty understandable way. So I would definitely recommend picking it up if you have big questions mm-hmm. um, and want to hear kind of more or less understandable ways to answer them and to think about them. So one question that I have for you is mm-hmm. while reading difficult texts, what is your strategy? Do you just wait for glimpses of recognition and then let them go as they pass by? Or do you sort of chase after really understanding what the idea mm-hmm. is? more the former. I try to pick ones that when I'm reading these sort of physics science books, ones that are written for a mass audience, someone with a humanities background, for instance, like me, so that I can just grab onto that idea. I just want to have the idea. I'm not interested in knowing the ins and outs of it. And then I will always have follow-up questions. And for those, I'll like just do my own research to kind of get a better grasp on it. Dan, this is such an exciting book for you to recommend (laughs) and really unexpected. Will you tell us the title again and the author? Absolutely. It is Brief Answers to the Big Questions, and it's the last book by Stephen Hawking. Thank you so much, Dan. That was Dan Lopez, author of The Show House. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sam Lipsight, author of Hark. that tech culture as opposed to kind of like corporate culture of the past in the 80s that was so much more obviously about you know money and success that some of the colors of tech culture about being having this you know conscientiousness about the like the body and ourselves and the planet and that that because it aspires to be more than just business it somehow is like easier to make fun of or has I mean what's your relationship to this kind of like Silicon Valley well I mean I I certainly like to take shots at it Mm -hmm. and I do in the book but I also think it's probably all of what you just described is filling the space that used to be taken up by other things like communities and religion in towns and civic minded people coming together and, and that that middle place that middle place where you know, you're not an individual and you're not part of, you know, some larger idea, whether it's a country or a religion, but you're just in that middle space. That's kind of gone. And so you have your computer and your kind of 
your interaction and interface with technology, but it has to be more than just money and it has to be more. So all of this other, these kinds of other spiritual ideas and self-help ideas and uh, mindfulness and all of that stuff, that that's what get, gets filled up there and saving the planet, but in this vague way, not really in a way like we're all going to get together and, you know, really fight the people who are destroying the planet or really fight the people who are, you know, ensuring rising inequality and really fight. There's none of that. It's just kind of, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to put on this cream <laughs> and I'm going to think about, you know, how much I hate Trump and, and then I'm going to f- do Facebook. <laughs> right. Uh, well, now that we have that name out there, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you while reading this book, something that struck me was that it's very American. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> well, you okay? You you it's say not that French. <laughs> it's not French. It's it, it's in English. So it is in English. Um, it it might be American in that sense, but you say yeah in a resigned manner. When I say it's very American, what do you? Why? Why do you feel? Just, why is there it's a just sigh? Shame. It's just shame. Just shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but something you know, it feels like it captures something. I kept hope, while I was reading. I kept hoping that this was a future dystopia, and it's not. It's not really. It kind of is. It kind of. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's. I mean, there is a kind of time in this book. In this reality, Obama had one term, and then. There are a few other presidents after that. So it's kind of in the future, kind of peeled off from our reality a little bit. But it's basically our world. Right. Yeah. Right. But it and it seems to encapsulate our world in a way that is spot on, feels very accurate. Oh. And, and American. And American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you find yourself sort of uh, thinking about the situation from the outside and, and figuring out how to put this into uh, a world Outside of what? Uh, uh, outside of the actual place that we're in, you know, it, because it seems like you have to be uh, an observer of sorts in order to it, it to show what it's like. Do you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, it does. But I think I think we all are pretty good at being both outside, outside and inside at the same time. And sort of, I don't know, I don't know exactly why, but I've, I've, none of us, nobody I know really feels like I'm in the center of it, things. They, most people I know feel. I'm watching this madness from the edge. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it is a kind of more natural place. And maybe it's because of the way we, maybe it just has to do with technology and has to do with the the way we engage with media. Or, or There are probably a lot of reasons, but um, who's inside? That's That would be my question. I don't even know. Yeah. Do you yeah, know? I guess <laughs> well, some people in Washington. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. I, mean, I think those are the people that feel they're at the center and everyone is around them. But I think, you know, it's a few people in the middle and then everybody else sort of pushed to the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, if, do you have children? Yes. Okay. Just the kids in this, there's, there's, I love when they suddenly were like, Daddy, what's the Illuminati? Yeah. Why, do, <laughs> why do lizards have heads? So the kids get caught up in these conspiracy theories. Oh, they do. Yeah. 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 But with the, just out of curiosity, personal interest when your kids how do you explain because this the book does have this kind of bleak outlook or we're here kind of we're already in the midst of catastrophe basically and especially regarding climate that's something I picked up on how do you explain those kind of things to your children or do you or how do you because it it's it's one thing for someone in their 
second half of their life to to feel like the future is really bleak. But how do you translate that to your kids, just out of curiosity? Well, I think you have to be, first of all, we don't know exactly what the nature of the catastrophe is going to be. I mean, we have an idea, but I was saying, we ha- everyone has this feeling like everything's ending and maybe it's just going to suck for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we have to be prepared for you know, the disappointment that it's just not all going to end that that soon but you know things things are could are could be difficult but first of all i think about how you know they're only going to know this world so in a sense they you know you don't have to explain to them that there was a time before people thought the climate was going to you know cause all this incredible upheaval right um that this is the world they know i mean i think you just try to instill the values you would instill in them and and you love them and teach them to love and and hope for the best. There's really there's nothing else to do. I mean, I, you can't you can't lie to them and say there's no such a thing as climate change. Oh, of course. <laughs> but, yeah. well, maybe if you're of a but, certain political persuasion, but you, you could. Can, but but you can say you can you know try to live a good life and do good things and be you know be a, uh, a productive member of your community and be kind to those around you and uh, and maybe you can be part of a some kind of solution or some making it not you know whether you can fix everything you probably can't but will there be pockets of hope here and there one one assumes that there will there will be opportunities to make things a little bit better or dealable and you know maybe you can be part of that it's tough it's not, it's not. <laughs> no i know no i know and i but, but i think just from yeah from my own experience you have kids i have a a young son okay. and then not i mean he doesn't talk so we haven't had to talk about climate right. change but it it's fine i feel very you know entitled to think ah uh, like you know, in 20 years, like, what are people talking about? We'll just be scraping the scraping the bottom of the earth, yeah, like, yeah. you know, trying to get food. It's exactly. going to be terrible. But it's that outlook. I just don't know how it's interesting how it would translate to my child who I brought into being here. I mean, why did I bring him here? It's a larger question, but I just, no, just I, mean, I think about this constantly because it's, you have to almost be have be two different people. Right. And you, you can't be that person with your child. You have to. uh I mean, I'm not saying what one should do, but right. I, I, this is what I say to myself. You know, you can't be this bitter, angry person about it all the time with your kid. You have to at least show that there's a possibility for, for life. Yeah. But, I mean, well, what about, you know, it's the Depression or, you know, World War II is going on or you're in a refugee camp in Europe in 1947. I mean, so there are all sorts of ways that people have gotten through this and and not knowing whether things were going to get better right. and not knowing mm-hmm. you know who's to say that you know 1948 is going to be better than 1945 you know you don't so i guess you just you love them <laughs> <laughs> there you go and say sorry things suck i hope they get better right <laughs> yeah. one of the things that struck me in the book there's a passage about history that is very funny that maybe well, I might read it. So, because I've never heard history described like this before. Or maybe I could ask you to read it. To say it once more, history hides. It hides inside every new interpretation of an interpretation. It hides, in fact, like the gem stuck up the ass of the flabby young man called history at the outset of this tale. History is both the hidden gem and the man in whom the gem has been noiselessly, perhaps greasily, inserted. 
Intelligence may be defined as the ability to behold both of these word pictures at once in the way you never could with a pair of nipples. (laughs) (laughs) This just, (laughs) I just, um, I Some of those sentences refer to earlier sentences. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. Um, But I I can almost guarantee uh, uh, listeners that they will never hear history described as accurately, maybe, and as uh, uniquely as that. That's not really like the Ken Burns way. uh, No, that is not how most of those documentaries begin. Um, (laughs) Just a zoom out of the jam. You guys should collaborate. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very big, big show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, how did you come to this (laughs) sort of... Uh, explanation of a concept that is quite difficult, history. Yeah, I well, play, uh-huh. you know, I, and I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't walking around with some profound idea about history and then trying to find a metaphor for it. I think I was just riffing. And that, and so first I got that, the young man, because he appears earlier in a, the book when the narrator speaks about history. And then, and then I had to turn that. I came back to it and and this, you know, this is what Gordon Lish taught us to, you know, you deform what's prior. If you put something in motion, you have it in motion and then you twist it and you torque it a little bit. And you and and in that way, you create a new angle and you create another layer. And uh, and so you're always kind of trying to bend and negate and change to kind of s- swerve and make make something new. And so, yeah, so I came. So, I, you know, short answer is I thought it was funny. So I just went with it. But uh if it also has some insight into the historical process, <laughs> that's a that's a bonus. <laughs> well, it seems like something that the book does extremely well is also think about um, the ways in which storytelling is kind of um, performative in that way, and that it the stories we tell then get changed, then they become history, mm-hmm. and then in the end with Hark. And I, I don't want to give away what happens, but the way that a person tells the story is extremely important. Yes. And I think I, with a lot of my work, I, I become caught up in that question. How are people narrating themselves and how are they narrating the world around them? And, and how do those different narratives interact? How do they dovetail? How do they fight each other? They're, I mean, so th- I'm always curious about that and also how people kind of miss each other as they're kind of narrating their themselves to mm. each other. I, just on a sense level, I'm wondering, like, because your sentences are so taut and the prose is so musical and it seems like actually very difficult to maintain that level for stories, it seems a little easier maybe, but to maintain that level for an entire novel. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your process and how many drafts do you do? Like, how much do you rewrite? Text yeah, I don't really I mean, I rewrite constantly and I always say I don't I don't really even like writing, I like rewriting. And so and that first draft where I'm really just figuring out what the book is, that is more of the the kind of improvisation stage where I'm just kind of making it up as I go along and not trying to forecast too much and not trying to impose an outline or structure on it. I'm, and then once I have something, I don't even consider I don't really number them drafts, you know, first draft, second draft, third draft. I'm just working on this thing for years and just going through it constantly. And and I think you're right with a story. A story is almost more like a poem. You kind of have to manage every word. And I think my feeling is with a novel, you should try. You're going to fail. You're not going to be able to do that. But even trying, you'll get somewhere interesting with the language if you, if you even attempt that impossible task. And right. so, like, I have... 
the whole document on my on my computer and for years I'm just working on it and working on it and to and then I'll print it out and do a lot of hand editing and I do this kind of back and forth editing on the computer printing it out editing it by hand writing bits all over it and the thing grows and these layers accumulate and the sentences are always changing or getting refined and things are getting thrown out and um but by the end after years with it you know if you said a word to me and not a word like the or and but a fairly you know uncommon word i would you know i could scroll to it immediately because right, I, I know where everything is mm-hmm. and so but you let yourself write kind of boring sentences in the beginning or is that do you work is it about like okay gotta get some at least some good ones in well, there well they or? have to be have some charge to them for me to move forward right so I, I always want to I'm not someone who can just blast through doesn't matter what these sentences are I'll fix them later because I feel like you know they're I'm making objects so I can't yeah. really just fix them later they have to i have to feel good about them now and then when i see what they can be that gives me the direction of how to go forward mm. at the end of the book there's a little poke at the writing world and a Hard depiction to resist those <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a depiction of a conference that resembles bread loaf yeah i would say <laughs> but you yourself work uh, in an mfa program yeah right so i wonder what is your relationship to you're obviously having fun you're having fun with the absurdities of this, the, the system that is a conference-like. or Yeah, I mean, like I was kind of making love. fun of the, the way there's a hierarchy of people in mm-hmm. these conferences. And, and this, the, kind of the, I was making fun of the, the politics of those sorts of gatherings. I think by the end of that chapter, though, the ideas that Tova has, I mean, she's the only one in the book who has a real moment of, of genuine deliverance. She writes a poem that actually moves people, and that's... And you know, and that's this small triumph for humanity in the in the swirl of everything else. So um, I wasn't certainly wasn't making fun of that. I was, but I was making fun of kind of the ways these conferences operate and the the writers who kind of come in and grandstand and and the uh, the, uh, the way people treat each other in the workshop, that sort of thing. I yeah. mean, that's always ripe for comedy. I think a writing workshop is just a natural <laughs> <laughs> sight of 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 terror and humor. <laughs> um. Yeah. And it, it seemed to me that for her, that was like the, the kind of anchor out of the darkness. Yeah. Right. That, that that she actually got to write a poem. Yeah. And that all those people in the workshop also respond. With, yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that to be one of yours? Or like a writing as a process to actually be sort of an anchor out of the nonsense? Yeah, I think it is for me. I mean, I think it's how I try to make sense of of things, even though I'm making nonsense, too. Um I think it's it gives it gives meaning to to my life. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't do it otherwise. Probably. Yeah, it'd be a tough job otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the only thing that gives meaning, but it's it's a very important part. Mm-hmm. And I guess the reason I mean, you can write and not publish. So I mean, I must want to share it with people, or I wouldn't. Right. Well, you know. in that workshop, somebody says, "Oh, you just have to write poetry in order to be a poet." You know. Have yeah. to actually do anything, right? Other than that, right? You're yeah. or you're only a poet when you're writing poetry. Yes, yeah. right, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Which I guess is a little bit different. Mm. Thanks for thanks for sharing. 
I meant right. that in relation to your sentence where you're like, you want to share it. Oh, okay. Like, oh. <laughs> hey, Sam, thanks for sharing anyways. Let's talk sober. Yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. <laughs> that's what I thought too. I was like, oh, okay, I guess we should yeah, close thanks this. thanks for sharing, pal. <laughs> no, you're saying, why would I share it? And I was like, well, thanks for sharing oh, okay. this. Thanks for sharing this novel with us. Well, thanks. thank you. Yes, thank you. And thank you for sharing this conversation with us. <laughs> um, We've been speaking with Sam Lipsight. His most recent novel is called Hark. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.